Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Blood of the Other, Part One A Baleful Bard and a Promised Prince The Castle Og. Our quest is at an end. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I could do the uh, Holy Grail lines pretty much all day. Hey there, friends, patrons, and fellow mythical astronomers. It's your starry host, LML. I'm ready to get this party started right away. I hope you enjoyed the prelude to a chill, and I hope I haven't destroyed your image of me entirely with that unexpected discussion of logistics and plausibility in the timeline. Similarly, I hope that last musical adventure into outer space at the end of the last podcast didn't give any of you bad dreams about visitors from other dimensions, because I would just feel terrible if that was the case. That's kind of just what happens when the moment is right and I have a lot of effects pedals at my disposal, which I usually do. In any case, having paved the way in the prelude to a chill, we're pretty much ready to hit the ground running with this episode, so let me say my thank yous. Thanks to Stanley Black for our intro music, used with permission. And thanks to John Walsh for lending us his flamenco guitar playing. And you can find more of John's music at the John Walsh Guitar YouTube channel. Thanks to Mr. Martin Lewis and the Amethyst Koala for their vocal acting talents. And thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for writing such excellent books. Thanks most of all to the Patreon sponsors of Mythical Astronomy for keeping the lights on. I'd actually like to give an extra special thanks to our Long Night's Watch patrons, who are filling out the watch very nicely. We're looking for 12 volunteers to become green zombies before the cold winds of winter arrive, and we have five so far. Just listen to these titles. These are just the kind of folks you need at your side to journey into the cold, dead lands. We've got Sharon Ice Eyes, Dread Ferryman of the North, Wielder of the Staff of the Old Gods, a weirwood staff banded in Valerian steel. That sounds like it might come in handy. There's Sir Cletus Ironwood Reborn of the Never Lazy Eye, Wrestler of Bulls and Slayer of the White Mists. Tormund might not know how to slay a mist, but Cletus Ironwood Reborn certainly does. Stepping up from the Priesthood of Starry Wisdom, it's Synxia, Frozen Fire Queen of the Summer Snows and Burner of Winter's Wick. The same goes for Antonius the Conspirator, the Red Right Hand of R'hllor, Knower of the Unknowable and Dispenser of Final Justice or just ice, as it may be. Finally, our newcomer, Garth Blue Moon, the Maze Maker, he who strides the river of time. If you'd like to join the Long Night's Watch or any other patron level, just go to luciformeanslightbringer.com and click on the Patreon tab, and that's also where you can find the matching text to this podcast. So without further ado, let's talk about The One That Got Away. The One That Got Away. This section is sponsored by the Cinder of the Citadel, wielder of the Burning Weirwood Spear, guardian of the Celestial Sow, and by Daphne Eversweet, queen bee of the Red Poppy Fields, guardian of the Crone's Lantern, and keeper of the Black Rabbit with the big pointy nasty teeth who could leap about. Look at the bones! At the end of the prelude to the series, I raise the question of historical parallels in regards to Gilly's babe the child known as Monster, who was intended to be given to the others, but wasn't. 
Gilly is a symbolic parallel of the Night's Queen, giving her sons to the wood to be transformed into others or used to create others in some way. So doesn't the example of her escaped child suggest that one of the children of Night's King and Queen similarly might not have been turned into another, but instead might have been rescued? That seems like it might be important, right? I mean, we've identified both Night's King and Night's Queen as magical beings, so any child of theirs might be a magical being as well and would be directly tied to the others, a kind of brother to the others, which sort of matches John's symbolism. Ah, but before we get carried away, let's start with the basics of this potential historical parallel. Consider what happens with Gilly and Monster. One of the big clues that Sam and Gilly are, in fact, echoing the rescue of a Knight's King and Queen baby is that Sam and Gilly smuggle Baby Monster south through the Black Gate at the Night Fort, the very seat of Knight's King. That's a bit on the nose, isn't it? Stealing a baby meant to be another, using the Night Fort? When you think about it, there are really only two main things that come from the Craster and Gilly storyline. The mutiny and murder of Lord Commander Mormont and the rescue of Gilly and her babe by Sam, with an assist from Cold Hands and the Ravens, and the Elk. Baby Monster continues to play a role in the storyline, and quite honestly, his rescue, stealing a baby from the others and a Knight's King figure, is really just too major of an event not to have some sort of historical parallel, in my opinion. Here's where all the research into R plus L equals J and the general moons of ice and fire pattern of a dark solar king with two moon wives comes in handy. These mythical astronomy templates serve as a great way to organize the various echoes of historical archetypes and events. Gilly is a knight's queen who has one son that is rescued, if you will. And of course, if we want to know if this really happened with the original knight's queen and king, all we have to do is look to our other knights, queen, and king figures. Rhaegar and Lyanna are the most important ones, so do they have a son who's rescued by any chance? Oh yes, it's Jon Snow, of course, whose symbolism already places him as a weird kind of brother to the others. Here lies the answer to the riddle I left you with at the end of Moons of Ice and Fire 5. If Jon is a child of a symbolic dark solar king and an ice moon queen, just as the others are, why isn't his symbolism identical to that of the others? Why is John more like a good other or a black other? Why does John have that black ice armor, like an inversion of the clear ice armor of the others? And why is he the one who is singularly dedicated to fighting the others? It's because he's a parallel to this one that got away, I think. The child of Night's King and Queen who wasn't turned into another. This child would be a brother to the others, as Gilly's monster is, but different as well. That fits John's symbolism perfectly, and again, John was stolen at birth, or perhaps we might say rescued. Ned had to disguise his parentage to save him from the wrath of Robert Baratheon, who was, at the time, making a strong effort to exterminate House Targaryen and secure his hold on the Iron Throne. Now think about the scene at the Tower of Joy again in this context. Take a deep breath, because this is going to be some sh Since the Kingsguard can be used to symbolize the others, and since Lyanna is a Night's Queen figure, we could absolutely see Ned at the Tower of Joy like a Stark Commando stealing a Night's Queen baby from the others. I mean, holy hell, Batman, think about it. Here's a heroic Stark fighting symbolic others and taking home a child of a Night's King and Queen figure. Taking him home and... Raising him as a Stark. Dun-dun-dun.
I mean, his name is Snow and not Stark, but Ned claims him as his son, and of course many things suggest John is a true Stark. From Rob's will naming him heir, to Stannis' offer to name him John Stark, Lord of Winterfell, to his overwhelming King of Winter symbolism that we discussed in the Green Zombie series. So, if John symbolizes a rescued Night's Queen baby, and he's raised in Winterfell as part of the Stark family and eventually becomes Lord of Winterfell, uh, doesn't that suggest that this hypothetical escaped Night's Queen baby may have been raised as a Stark? This would mean that all of the Winterfell Starks since the Long Night might descend from Night's King and Queen. It's good to see that frozen face of yours, Ned! If this theory about the origins of House Stark tracing to a Night's King baby is true, then this is one of the major things being hinted at at the Tower of Joy scene. This may well be the reason why the Tower of Joy has been presented to us as this defining, pivotal scene. It's actually showing us the origins of House Stark. Now, I can't actually claim to have thought of this one completely on my own. The idea of the Starks being the family associated with ice as an opposite to House Targaryen and the Valerians before them is readily apparent to everyone. And the idea of the Starks having an actual link to ice magic through a child of Night's King and Queen is actually an old idea which has been floating around on the margins of the fandom and forms here and there for a long time. Gilly's baby plants the notion of a baby saved from the others in the mind of a reader, so it's somewhat logical to wonder if this could be part of the link between Stark and Other. But here's the thing. Whomever made this connection initially would have done it primarily on intuition. I mean, it's not too hard to draw a comparison between Craster and Knight's King, both quote-unquote sacrificing to the Others, and thus begin to see Gilly's babe as an escaped Other child. But they wouldn't have known to compare Lyanna and Rhaegar to Knight's King and Queen, and thus would not have realized that John actually represents an escaped other baby as well, just like Baby Monster. And that's the big clue that the stolen other baby became a Stark of Winterfell. But we, on the other hand, have the advantage of mythical astronomy to guide us and help us identify multiple examples of the Ice Queen archetype, if you will. So we can see that, in fact, both Gilly and Lyanna parallel Night's Queen, and both have their sons rescued. It was when I noticed this that I remembered that theory about House Stark being tied to a child of Night's King and Queen, and I realized that it was probably true. Symbolically, Jon Snow represents a rescued child of Night's King and Queen, a prince that was promised to the others, but was never delivered. The parallels go much further, as always. As always. Consider the various plans for Gilly's baby monster. Sam's first plan is to pass off Gilly's baby as his own bastard and send Gilly and Monster along to his family at Horn Hill. This creates the possibility that this would-be other baby could eventually become the lord of Horn Hill, should something unfortunate happen to Dickon Tarly, Sam's brother. Because after all, Dickon is fond of hunting, and as Cersei says, the woods are the abattoir of the gods. So what we have here is a Night's Watch brother, stealing a Night's Queen would-be other baby at the Night Fort and instead setting him up to take over his house, one of the oldest First Men houses in Westeros. House Tarly would seem to be standing in for House Stark here and thereby pointing us back to the idea of a truly cold origin for the Winterfell Starks. The fact that Sam swears his oaths to the heart tree with John in the traditional way of the ancient first men enhances this image of Sam as an original Night's Watchman, 
and thus a placeholder for a Stark in this instance, as does his ability to pass through the Black Gate by reciting the older, stripped-down version of the Night's Watch Oath. It's worth noting that Sam and Ned would both be playing the same rescuer role, Sam at the Night Fort with Gilly's Babe, and Ned with John at the Tower of Joy. Cold Hands can probably be put in this rescuer figure category too, and as a green zombie Night's Watchman himself, he definitely seems like a throwback to the original Night's Watch. Heck, there's a chance that Cold Hands is one of the original Night's Watch, as I mentioned in the Sacred Order of Green Zombie series. Another plan to safeguard Baby Monster makes the parallel to another baby raised as a Stark even more apparent. It comes from John's imagination when he considers Stannis' offer to make him John Stark, Lord of Winterfell. To take the offer, John would have to marry Val, which John thinks, you know, wouldn't be so bad, <laughs> even though he'd rather marry Ygritte, who is dead at this point in the story. Thinking of Val, John says to himself, I would need to steal her if I wanted her love, but she might give me children. I might someday hold a son of my own blood in my arms. A son was something Jon Snow had never dared dream of, since he decided to live his life on the wall. I could name him Rob. Val would want to keep her sister's son, but we could foster him at Winterfell, and Gilly's boy as well. Sam would never need to tell his lie. We'd find a place for Gilly too, and Sam could come visit her once a year or so. Mance's son and Craster's would grow up brothers, as I once did with Rob. This quote is really great because it has John doing a Night's King routine by marrying the Night's Queen figure Val and having Stark children with her. And simultaneously, he's imagining taking in another Night's Queen figure and her baby, Gilly and Monster, and taking them back to Winterfell as well. John then compares himself growing up as a brother to the Starks to Monster and Mance's son growing up as brothers at Winterfell. You don't even need any metaphors or symbolism here. This plan literally involves a baby stolen from the others being raised at Winterfell, and then directly compares that plan to John being taken from his mother and raised at Winterfell. It's pretty strong evidence in support of the icy origins of House Stark hypothesis. And yeah, that's what we're calling it. The icy origins of House Stark hypothesis. Every good theory needs a grand nickname. If John had taken Stannis up on his offer to become John Stark, Lord of Winterfell, it would have been John's genes, John and Val's genes, a.k.a. John Valjean, that established the future line of House Stark. And this is what I think happened to House Stark in the beginning. The idea of Night's King and Queen genetics being slipped into House Stark is actually doubly implied here, with two generations of Night's King and Queen pairings going into this proposed takeover of House Stark by John and Val. First you had Rhaegar and Lyanna, who are Night's King and Queen figures, and then Jon and Val, who are Night's King and Queen figures. The fact that Stannis, a Night's King figure at the Wall, wants to make Jon Snow, the stolen other baby, the Lord of Winterfell, is yet another echo of the pattern. And credit for that find goes to one of our mythical astronomy patrons. Appropriately, it's the guardian of the celestial ice dragon, Nienna the Wise, the Persephenix, whose words are, From Sorrow, Wisdom. I think the icy origins of House Stark hypothesis explains a lot of things, especially in terms of the themes of the story. It's not just John who was like a good other or inverted other. The same could really be said for House Stark as a whole. As I alluded to in the prelude, the Starks parallel the others as ice-eyed, snow-bearded kings of winter 
who wield ice swords, and yet they oppose the others, just as John does. The reason might be the same. It's their possible descent from this other baby that got away. As you might have guessed, it seems very possible that this escaped other baby may have been the last hero, although it's also possible that the rescuer figure, represented by Sam and Ned and even Cold Hands, is actually the last hero. Perhaps the rescuer figure is the last hero taking a Knight's Queen baby home as a souvenir after Knight's King is defeated. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. Let's think about this theory in terms of magical bloodlines and within the context of all the evidence that points to Knight's King as having been a blood of the dragon person, either Azor High or his descendant. If Knight's King was a dragon person, like Rhaegar, and the Starks descend from a son of Knight's King, would that make the Starks blood of the dragon people? More secret Valerians? That would be blasphemy, right? Well, for all intents and purposes, the answer is no, so don't throw your headphones or swerve your car off the road or flip any tables here on me. Think about it like this. The fiery dragon genes of evil Azor High as the Night's King are frozen in the icy womb of Night's Queen. That's something we saw depicted over and over with all the shivering flame and fires turning cold at Night's Queen weddings like that of Alice Karstark or Jane Poole. When these formerly blood of the dragon babies then come out of the cold womb of Night's Queen, I believe the affinity for fire that can be expressed by blood of the dragon people would have been flipped, and these Night's Queen babies would have had some sort of affinity for ice, in a way beyond what Gilly's babe might possess, since Gilly is a normal human being, and not an ice priestess or whatever Night's Queen was. However, I don't think Night's Queen was popping out full-grown others, I suspect that just as Gilly's babes are somehow transformed or used to make others, there must have been a second step to the process of making others from the cold babies of Night's King and Queen. Otherwise, this theory wouldn't make any sense at all. If Night's Queen was giving birth to full-grown others straight from her womb, then there would be no way to steal one and make it a flesh-and-blood Stark. Rather, I imagine these cold Night's Queen babies as having a natural affinity for ice magic in their blood that can be activated and awakened, just as Bran's blood makes him a green seer, but the weirwood paste and tree bonding and three-eyed crow pecking are necessary to awaken his gifts. So for all intents and purposes, a Night's Queen baby wouldn't really be blood of the dragon anymore. If one of those cold children avoided his fate of becoming an other and instead became the Lord of Winterfell, he might, if anything, be able to pass down this affinity for ice magic to his Stark descendants. Call it the blood of the ice dragon, or better yet, the blood of the other. It makes sense, right? The Targaryens are the blood of the dragon, and the Starks are the blood of the other. This natural symmetry is one of the things that has always made some version of this icy origins of House Stark theory attractive. And again, I will say that it resonates with the theme of the Starks, who are from the beginning tied to the Others. Just to name one example, the prologue of A Game of Thrones ends with the Others stabbing Waymar with swords of ice. And the next chapter begins with Ned beheading Waymar's black brother from the same mission, Garrod, with a sword named Ice. Now, polishing off my ancient alien's voice, I'll pose the question, is it possible that this icy Stark lord the child of Night's King and Queen, was actually the man remembered as Bran the Builder? If an escaped other baby did have some sort of ability to wield ice magic, this could explain the building of the wall, right? 
the wall is probably not a simple matter of just stacking blocks of ice into a really tall wall. There's almost assuredly magic involved. Ygritte says the wall was built with blood, so it may have even been blood magic of some kind that was used, which would surprise exactly no one, I think. Bloody or not, is it possible that the magic used to build this giant wall of ice was wielded by this rescued Night's Queen child turned Stark? This would begin to address one of the big logical issues with the theories about who built the wall. The others are the ones who can do incomprehensible magical things with ice, so they're the first candidate to consider for builders of the great ice wall, but trying to grasp their motive is like trying to catch a falling icicle. Were the others trying to keep men out of their lands? It's not really necessary, given their ability to raise the dead, and given their immunity to everything but dragon glass and probably valerian steel. And would the others really build such a big, beautiful wall and let the stinking Night's Watch crawl all over it? Another point to consider is that until recent years, the Night's Watch ranged freely into the haunted forest with no trouble from anyone but the wildlings. And of course, the wildlings have lived north of the wall for centuries, implying that the others haven't really been super worried about keeping humans out of their territory until just recently. In other words, if the others built the wall, there must be some motive that we simply can't fathom at this point. But if the wall wasn't built by the others, and was indeed meant to keep the others out, as advertised, the big mystery is who it would have been among those fighting for the side of the living that could manipulate ice with magic. Who could it have been that possessed abilities with ice magic that rival those of the others, but who would have been motivated to keep the others out of Westeros proper? Perhaps it was this son of Night's Queen, mayhaps his name was Brandon, and mayhaps he used magical abilities inherited from Night's King and Queen to build the wall out of ice, either during the long night or right after, thereby earning him his nickname of The Builder. I think most would agree that right after the end of the long night is a logical point in the timeline to place the building of the wall. For what it's worth, Mance's wife Dalla, who seems like a wise character, has this to say about the wall when Mance mentions that many of his people wanted him to blow the horn of winter and make the wall fall. But once the wall is fallen, Della said, what will stop the others? Mance also explains that his ultimate purpose is actually to flee the others and get the wildlings on the south side of the wall. I think that's worth considering. The wildlings are the most connected to the ancient northern lore, such as the children of the forest and the giants, so their opinion counts for something. Mance and Dalla clearly think that the wall is meant to stop the others. Now, setting aside the question of who built the wall and why, which we will come back to, have no fear, you can see how this icy origins of House Stark theory about a Night's Queen baby becoming the ancestor of the Winterfell Starks helps to stitch together the Azor High Dragonlord part of the narrative and the Night's King, Last Hero, House Stark side of things. We've been following the trail of Azor High from Ashai to Westeros, from Old Town all the way up to the Wall, wondering how this freight train of dragon symbolism would collide with the classic northern legends of Bran the Builder, Last Hero, and Night's King. This rescued Night's Queen baby theory has the satisfying effect of making Night's King himself both a dragon lord, as the symbolism suggests, former Dragonlord, I guess we might say, but also a Stark, as the narrative demands. Night's King started off as a Dragonlord, but his seed would have founded the modern House Stark, 
with the important caveat that this seed was transformed when it was given to the night's queen, from the blood of the dragon to the blood of the other. Alrighty, before we move on to the next section, I want to mention that there may be one more layer in between true Dragonlord blood and House Stark, if Night's King is instead a son of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa, instead of the original moon-breaking Azor Ahai himself. That scenario would go like this. Azor Ahai Sr., let's call him, he comes to Westeros and has a child with Nissa Nissa some time before she dies, and that child would then grow up to be Night's King, whose son then escapes and becomes the ancestor of the Starks. Now, it seems overwhelmingly likely that Azor Ahai had at least one child with Nissa Nissa, since procreation is probably the most important aspect of the Lightbringer monomyth. So that kid kind of has to turn up somewhere. Those who have read or listened to my Weirwood Goddess series know that there are many clues about Nissa Nissa being an elf woman of some kind, either a child of the forest or a human-child hybrid. In this case, the child of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa may only be half-dragon person and might have access to green seer or skin changer abilities. This person might have become Night's King, as I mentioned. And it's also possible that this child of Nissa Nissa could be either the last hero or the rescuer figure, or both if they're the same person. There are some really juicy potential echoes in the Targaryen family tree about this child of Nissa Nissa, actually, and there are clues that he or his descendant may have become Night's King. Consider the genes that led up to the Night's King figure Rhaegar, the man who gave his seed to Night's Queen figure Lyanna. Leading up to Rhaegar, Viserys, and Danny, there were two generations of incest. Ares and Rhaella were brother and sister, and their parents, Jaehaerys II and Shara Targaryen, were brother and sister too. But their parents were an interesting match indeed. Aegon V, also known as Egg and Aegon the Unlikely, and Black Betha Blackwood. House Blackwood is a house which has recently produced a green seer, Bloodraven, a.k.a. Brynden Rivers, and given Nissa Nissa's association with darkness, her death was used to usher in the Long Night, and her death correlates to the death of the Fire Moon, which gave us the darkness of the Long Night, I tend to see Black Betha as a great Child of the Forest Nissa Nissa analog. Call her Betha Betha. Aegon would be Azor High, and indeed, later in life, he did become obsessed with hatching dragon's eggs. This obsession led to the catastrophe of Summerhall, which is a vivid Fire Moon explosion metaphor, where Aegon Ahai and Betha Betha both died appropriately. I mean, it was sad, but their deaths were appropriate for symbolism. In other words, Aegon and Black Betha may be serving as a symbolic historical parallel to Azor Ahai the Dragonlord coming to Westeros and marrying a child of the forest Nissa Nissa. Their great-grandson Rhaegar is a Night's King figure who does all the Night's King things, so perhaps the original Night's King descends from a child of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa. And even though Rhaegar isn't a Black Betha's son, kind of might as well be, because as a result of all that incest, he has roughly the same half-Targaryen, half-Blackwood genetic makeup of Egg and Black Betha's children. Same is true for Danny, of course. She's basically half-Blackwood. That's a bit of an oversimplification in terms of genetics, of course, but I think you take my point. For that matter, Bloodraven himself is a walking clue about the blood of the dragon being injected into an ancient first man house with green seer abilities, if you think about it. Now, one generation before Egg and Black Betha, we have Egg's parents, Makar Targaryen and 
Deanna Dane. I know many of you know that, so sorry for being melodramatic, but that's another home run as an echo of the past, since the Danes seem to descend from the great empire of the dawn from whence Azor High came, and yet are thought of as first men. In other words, the Danes themselves probably represent a merging of first men blood and blood of the dragon from way back. This may be another clue that the Azor High bloodline blended with the blood of the first men before producing that dragon person who then became Night's King. It's worth noting that the few stone fortress at Battle Isle is indicative of a colony or at least a long-term trading outpost, which would have given the dragon lords ample time to mingle their blood with the first men before the fall of the Long Night, and in the south, in relative proximity to Starfall. As usual, I'm going to avoid trying to choose which exact scenario is the capital-T truth, but there are a couple of things that I do feel solid about. The evidence suggesting Nissa Nissa as at least part child of the forest is pretty solid, and it seems obvious that Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa would have had at least one child together, whom we have to assume is an important figure. I'm also confident that Knight's King had some amount of Blood of the Dragon in his veins and a direct connection to Azor Ahai, and I'm pretty confident that one of the children of Knight's King and Queen was indeed smuggled away to safety. And if that's the case, I'm pretty sure this rescued ice baby would have become a Stark, both for the sake of thematic sensibility, I mean, if anyone's related to the others, it has to be the Starks, right? And because of the parallels with John and Baby Monster. Leanna and Gilly are both Night's Queen figures who have their babies smuggled away and raised under false identities, with John being raised at Winterfell and Monster almost being raised there. Fortunately, and predictably, it's not just Leanna and Gilly and their children, John and Monster, who tell the tale. As usual, we are given many characters who play into this archetype of the stolen other baby, and this is usually the point where I would list them out to you. But since I gave you the big reveal at the beginning, I'm going to maintain the element of surprise by revealing them one or two at a time. A Bale Issue this section is sponsored by a priestess of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand, the Lady of Stellar Reason and Maleficence, and by two new priestesses of Starry Wisdom, Crowfood's Daughter, the Disputed Lands, and Relore Girl, Mistress of the Pointy End, whose house words are, Show us your moons. With the exception of John and Monster, the most important potential echo of stealing a Night's Queen baby to become a Stark is most certainly found in the Bale the Bard story. It's not a perfect echo, but it has very important lessons to teach us. Bale the Bard is a roguish, wildling minstrel and a king beyond the wall, and his story is intricately linked with that of Rhaegar and Lyanna. This is apparent from the moment that Ygritte brings up the subject of Bale, shortly after Jon has taken her prisoner in the Frostfangs in A Clash of Kings. You said you were the bastard of Winterfell. I am. Who was your mother? Some woman. Most of them are. Someone had said that to him once. He did not remember who. She smiled again, a flash of white teeth. And she never sung you the song of the winter rose? I never knew my mother, or any such song. Bale the Bard made it, said Ygritte. He was king beyond the wall a long time back. Ygritte asking John if his mother ever sang the song of the winter rose is one of those deliciously ironic things that you can only catch on a reread. He never knew his mother, Leanna, nor the Song of the Winter Rose. But Leanna's song was the Song of the Winter Rose, for all intents and purposes. 
This may be a good time to remind you about another part of the tourney of Harrenhal sequence of events, something that happened at the feast the night before the tourney. The dragon prince sang a song so sad it made the wolf maid sniffle, but when her pup brother teased her for crying, she poured wine over his head. In other words, we can basically say that Rhaegar sang her the Song of the Winter Rose, as this song seems to have sown the seeds for their love and was followed up by the crown of blue winter roses. Returning to the Bale story, Ygritte begins by telling us that Bale was a great raider and a longtime nemesis of the Stark and Winterfell at that time. The Stark and Winterfell wanted Bale's head, but never could take him, and the taste of failure galled him. One day, in his bitterness, he called Bale a craven who preyed only on the weak. When word of that got back, Bale vowed to teach the Lord a lesson. So he scaled the wall, skipped down the king's road, and walked into Winterfell one winter's night with harp in hand, naming himself Sidric of Skagos. Sidric means deceiver in the old tongue that the first men spoke, and the giants still speak. This has obvious parallels to Mance sneaking into Winterfell, which we'll discuss momentarily. But sticking with the story, we learn that Bale, disguised as Sidric, plays so well and pleases the Lord of Winterfell so much that he told Bale to name his reward. Ygritte tells us of Bale's famous response. All I ask is a flower, Bale answered, the fairest flower that blooms in the gardens of Winterfell. Now, as it happened, the winter roses had only then come into bloom, and no flower is so rare nor precious. So the Stark sent to his glass gardens and commanded that the most beautiful of the winter roses be plucked for the singer's payment. And so it was done. But when morning come, the singer had vanished, and so had Lord Brandon's maiden daughter. Her bed they found empty, but for the pale blue rose that Bale had left on the pillow where her head had lain. The distraught Lord Brandon searches high and low for a year to no avail, and because his daughter was his only child, he feared the line of Stark would end. But then one day he finds his daughter in her chambers with a young male baby. They had been in Winterfell all the time, hiding with the dead beneath the castle. The maid loved Bale so dearly she bore him a son, the song says. Though if truth be told, all the maids loved Bale in them songs he wrote. Be that as it may... What's certain is that Bale left the child in payment for the rose he'd plucked unasked, and that the boy grew to be the next Lord Stark. It's easy to see that Bale, as a singer and harpist who abducts a blue rose maiden of Winterfell, serves as a great parallel to Rhaegar, who is thought of as having abducted Lyanna, and that's kind of the point. Think about it like this. Both Rhaegar and Bale effectively slipped their seed into the Winterfell family tree, via a blue rose maiden that loved them. Did Night's King do the same? Well, if one of his children became a Stark, then the answer is yes. The logistics are a little different, but the main points are the same, as we've just seen. And now consider this. Night's King brought his Winter Queen back to the Nightfort, while Bale brought his blue rose maiden down into the crypts. But I'm sure you can see the similar underworld symbolism of both places. And as we saw at the very beginning of the story, the crypts are also the place where people go to find a surprisingly lifelike Lyanna Stark as well. Whether it's Robert stroking the cheek of her statue as if he could will her back to life, whoa there, Mr. Necromancer, or Ned dreaming of Lyanna's statue weeping blood. Robert actually complains that Ned brought her back to the crypt, saying that she should be buried on a sunny hillside. But Ned insists that this is her place and she wished to be buried here. 
It's a great parallel to the blue rose maiden of the Bale story who hid out in the crypts. There's actually a shout-out to Bale taking his Stark maiden down to the crypts, when Robert says that although he killed Rhaegar on the trident and won the throne, somehow he's still won. He has Lyanna now, and I have her, her being Cersei. So the bard and the blue rose maiden are together forever. But in the underworld, like Bale and his maiden in the crypts, were knights king and queen at the Nightfort. We can also observe that not only did Bale and Rhaegar both abduct, quote-unquote, a Blue Rose Stark maiden, who seems to have actually loved them, both played overpowering music to win the hand or heart of their winter lady. This begs the question, was Night's King a singer? It seems possible, so we'll have to come back to this idea in a minute. Now, the name that Bale takes, Sidric, means the deceiver in the old tongue. And the deceiver happens to be one of the most common nicknames for the devil in the Bible. This kind of implies Bale as devilish, and thereby helps us to see Bale as a dark solar king figure like Rhaegar and Night's King. Bale is just the right sort of guy to be giving his seed to the Winter Queen, in other words. And I know, he knew no fear and that was the fault in him, is one of the more vague parts of the Night's King description, but there's no doubt that both Bale and Mance had to be utterly fearless to sneak into the fortress of their enemy, armed with only a loot. It may go without saying, but Bale is also an obvious parallel for Mance Raider, who, like Bale, is a bard and a king beyond the wall who also sneaks into Winterfell using a false name. Mance uses Abel, which is an anagram of Bale. Indeed, Mance is basically presented to us as a modern-day Bale right from the beginning, when we meet him sitting cross-legged in his command tent, playing the lute and singing of the Dornishman's wife, and only shortly after Ygritte has given us the Bale legend. Now, when Mance, disguised as Abel, sneaks into Winterfell, he doesn't slip his seed into any bloodlines, but he does seek to steal a Stark maiden after a fashion, who would be Jane Poole, who is being passed off as Arya Stark. As we discussed last time, Jane has abundant Night's Queen, Corpse Queen, and Ice Queen symbolism, so although she's not specifically tied to Blue Roses, this actually works out really well. We can also see an echo of the rescue of a Night's Queen baby if Jane is pregnant with Ramsay's baby, as I suspect she may be. Ramsay himself is a Night's King figure, so it really would fit the pattern. Theon, meanwhile, who thinks of himself as a Stark at last in these Winterfell chapters, would be playing the same rescuer role that Ned plays at the Tower of Joy and that Sam plays at Craster's Keep and the Nightfort. So, Mance parallels Bale the Bard, and Bale the Bard parallels Rhaegar, and I probably don't have to tell you that Rhaegar and Mance complete the circle by sharing a certain amount of symbolism, though they are definitely not the same person. They're both Bard kings, Rhaegar's a prince, but close enough, who play a father figure role to John. Rhaegar is John's paternal father, and Mance is someone that John learns from, sees himself in, and looks up to. Mance's black cloak slashed with red gives him Rhaegar's colors, and both Rhaegar and Mance lost their final battle to a Baratheon, Robert and Stannis, respectively. Both Rhaegar and Mance had a son who was born around the time that they lost their final battle, sons whom they never met, and both of the mothers of these sons, Dalla and Lyanna, died in childbirth. Bale has a son he didn't know for more than a few months, which is similar, and like the tales of Rhaegar, Mance, and Knight's King, Bale the Bard's tale has a tragic ending tied to a final battle. However, 
That's going to lead to a bit of a subtopic, so let's make this a section break and read some more Patreon names. The One That Came Back This section is sponsored by three new members of the Starry Wisdom Priesthood. Stella de Silvestri, also called Yellow Stella, Mistress of Arcana. John of House Elric of Rezimbul, the Winter Sun. And Luis of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne. For the doom-ridden end of Bale's story, let's pass the mic back to Ygritte. The song ends when they find the babe, but there's a darker end to the story. Thirty years later, when Bale was king beyond the wall and led the free folk south, it was young Lord Stark who met him at the frozen ford and killed him, for Bale would not harm his own son when they met sword to sword. So the son slew the father instead, John said. Aye, she said. But the gods hate kinslayers, even when they kill unknowing. When Lord Stark returned from the battle and his mother saw Bale's head upon his spear, she threw herself from a tower in her grief. Her son did not long outlive her. One of his lords peeled the skin off him and wore him for a cloak. The winter rose maiden, throwing herself from a tower, is like a merging of a Shara Dane throwing herself from a tower and Lyanna dying in the top of a tower. However, the main thing that grabs our attention as an important Night's King parallel is the father and son fighting one another theme. That really seems like what the Night's King last hero relationship might be all about. Our devilish Night's King figure, Bale, donates a son to the bloodline of Winterfell, and that son grows up to be the Stark in Winterfell and eventually journeys north to confront and kill his father. When the last hero went north to end the Long Night, was that the son of the Night's King? going to slay his dad? They fought at the Frozen Ford, which kind of sounds like it could be a placeholder for the wall, which is like a frozen river when viewed from above, and the Night Fort would be the crossing point of that frozen river. So this almost sounds like Night's King's son coming back to the Night Fort to kill him. After all, John does dream of slaying a whited version of his true father, Ned, at Castle Black. Whatever demonic force moved Othor had been driven out by the flames. The twisted thing they had found in the ashes had been no more than cooked meat and charred bone. Yet in his nightmare he faced it again. And this time the burning corpse wore Lord Eddard's features. It was his father's skin that burst and blackened. His father's eyes that ran liquid down his cheeks like jellied tears. John did not understand why that should be, or what it might mean but it frightened him more than he could say. I'm sure that if John had had the chance to re-listen to his life on audiobook ten times over like we've had, he would have eventually puzzled out the meaning. In any case, we know to look at scenes like this as potential echoes of the past, and the idea of John having to kill a cold-whited version of his father might have been included to serve as a parallel to Bale being killed by his son, and more importantly, to Night's King being killed by his son, the last hero. Ned is generally not a Night's King figure, but the whited dream version of Ned with blue star eyes and a black cloak of the Night's Watch certainly does the trick. The white in that scene was the former brother named Othor, so he's kind of standing in for the others in general, and if you recall, the whited Othor has a moon face in that scene, very like the moon that leers with Euron's face in the forsaken chapter of The Winds of Winter, and of course Euron is a Night's King figure. 
We find fainter echoes of the son-kills-father motif when John faces Mance's army in the Battle of the Wall, and then when John is later sent north of the Wall to kill Mance through treachery. Since Mance is something of a father figure to John, and shares symbolism with Rhaegar, John's biological father. If and when John finds out that Rhaegar was his biological father, I'm sure he'll dream of killing him too. There's another T-Wow prediction for you. As we know, legend says that one of the men who brought down Knight's King was Brandon the Breaker, who is said to have been Knight's King's brother in some tales, as opposed to his son, as some of these echoes would suggest. Regardless, Brandon the Breaker was the Stark in Winterfell who went north to face Knight's King, who was of his blood, just as Bale's son went north to face his father Bale, a Knight's King figure. Said another way, Bale and Knight's King were both defeated by the Stark in Winterfell, who was of their blood, and that's a great parallel between them, even if one is a brother and one is a son. Everyone knows the Bale story parallels Rhaegar and Lyanna's story, and I've shown you how Rhaegar and Lyanna parallel Knight's King and Queen, so finding parallels between Bale the Bard's story and Knight's King means that each of these three stories has echoes of the other two. Although they have subtle variations, these three stories all have a Night's King figure slipping his seed into the bloodline of House Stark via a Blue Winter Rose Maiden, with Night's Queen as the original Blue Winter Rose Maiden, so to speak. The son kills the father symbolism of Jon Snow, and Bale's son might suggest a last hero who was both a Stark of Winterfell and the son of Night's King, while the Brand and the Breaker legend suggests that the last hero might have been the brother of Night's King. Lest I gloss over a meaningful point, yeah, think about it. If Night's King ruled during the Long Night, whoever defeated him was probably the last hero. If Brandon the Breaker defeated Night's King, then Brandon the Breaker may have been the last hero. If this is the case, then the thing that Brandon broke would have been the Long Night. The cool thing about John is that whether the Night's King and the last hero are a brother-brother thing or a father-son thing, he's got us covered. We just saw that he dreams of killing Whited Ned, and as you may recall from Bloodstone Compendium 2... He also dreams of killing his brother Rob, with a flaming sword no less. This is as he stands atop the wall, defending it from icy foes who scuttle up the ice like spiders. There's a kind of weaker symbolic echo of this son-kills-a-father pattern with Craster as well, who makes white shadows with Gilly and the rest of his wives, and thus plays the Night's King role, of course. Obviously, Monster would need to grow up and travel back in time to kill Craster since he's already dead, but consider the symbolism of the person who does kill Craster. It's a black brother named Dirk. His symbolism is that of a black Dirk, a black knife, in other words. And this may be similar to John's symbolism of being like dragonglass and black ice. You'll remember that Stannis talks about finding and using John like John found the dragonglass. This is not only John's symbol, but more importantly, the symbol of the dragon locked in ice. And all of these Night's Queen baby slash last hero figures are playing that dragon-locked in ice role. Thus, Knight's King Craster was slain by a black knife person who called himself a sword in the darkness, and that's a message that fits in with all the other symbolism that we're discussing here. At the very least, it makes sense to see members of the Knight's Watch kill a Knight's King figure, with the name Dirk sort of emphasizing the symbolism of the Knight's Watch as human swords. There's actually a lot more to this pattern of the last hero coming to kill his father or brother who is the Night's King, but we've got to introduce more Night's King figures to get there, and we've got to dip into some world mythology that George is referencing. But real quickly before we move on, 
I just want to say a quick word about Craster himself, since we're talking about him anyway, and he doesn't really fit anywhere else. It's worth noting that Craster is the bastard son of a Night's Watch brother, and Ygritte says that Craster's blood is black and he bears a heavy curse. That all could potentially fit with the Dark Solar King archetype, who represents an undead and or transformed sun figure, which the black blood can signify. And the cursed part surely applies to someone who may have broken the moon or created the others, right? Craster has a cold smell to him, so obviously he's not a warm kind of solar figure. He would be showing us Night's King after he's already given his seed and soul to Night's Queen, just like the ghostly version of Rhaegar that burns with a cold light. Weirdly, Craster has 19 wives, and there are 19 fortresses on the wall. Let me know what you think that could mean. The other 19 that seems relevant pops up when the survivors of the Fist of the First Men return to Craster's Keep, as Sam reports to Mormont that they have 19 dragonglass arrowheads. It's pretty easy to see the symbolic similarity between the 19 fortresses of the Black Brothers and the 19 dragonglass arrowheads, since the brothers that man those fortresses are meant to wield dragonglass. But I'm not really sure why Craster would have 19 wives or what that could mean. Perhaps Craster is like the wall and his wives are like the fortresses, but again, I'm not sure what the meaning would be. Ygritte was 19 as well, for what it's worth. Finally, there are even some credible theories out there that the black brother who fathered Craster was either Maester Aemon, formerly Aemon Targaryen, or Bloodraven when he was Sir Brynden Rivers, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Either scenario would make Craster the blood of the dragon, and either scenario would be a nice match for my hypothesis about Night's King being Azor Ahai or his son. I mean, Craster is a white-haired sheepherder practicing a ton of incest, which is basically a 100% accurate description of the Valerians. Give that man a loot! I'll just let that sink in for a moment. A white-haired sheepherder practicing a ton of incest and maybe a bit of human sacrifice to create monsters. That's right. That description applies to both Craster and the Valerians. So I'm not sure if Craster really does have Blood of the Dragon, but at the least, the incesty shepherd thing does make for a good comparison to the Valerians, and it serves to make him a stand-in for a Blood of the Dragon person, even if he actually isn't one. All right, so we're done with our three devilish bards, Bale and Mance and Rhaegar, plus our non-bard, Craster, all of whom have a stolen or rescued son that seems to fit the pattern of the stolen child of Night's King and Queen. We're going to continue to follow the trail of this stolen other baby, but as I mentioned earlier, all this bard stuff begs the question, was Night's King a freaking bard? Well, we'll have to ask the singers. A bale to dread. This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of three new acolytes of the Church of Starry Wisdom. Stephanie Stormstrummer, Minstrel of the Mountains. Messiah of the Oily Hand, Boatman of the Shivering Sea. And by Craveris, the Winged Ram of the Purple Skies. Now, I suppose it's possible that Night's King was literally a singer of some kind. He's a singing werewolf. But I have to suspect that the singing we're talking about is the magical kind, something closer to the singing that the green seers do, those who sing the song of Earth. Singing to the stars, perhaps, but again in the magical sense. The devotees of the Church of Starry Wisdom, founded by the Bloodstone Emperor himself, 
are known to sing to the stars. As she made her way past the temples, she could hear the acolytes of the cult of the starry wisdom atop their scrying tower, singing to the evening stars. Of course, they don't just sing for the sake of singing. They practice dark magic in their scrying tower and attempt to gain the wisdom of the stars, or something esoteric like that. Melisandre actually does a bit of singing during the Lightbringer foraging ritual, when it says, Melisandre sang in the tongue of a shy, her voice rising and falling like the tides of the sea. In fact, there are six references to Melisandre singing, always when she prays to R'hllor. I'm also thinking of the sort of singing that comes with the closing lines of a Game of Thrones. As Daenerys Targaryen rose to her feet, her black hissed. Pale smoke venting from its mouth and nostrils, the other two pulled away from her breasts and added their voices to the call, translucent wings unfolding and stirring the air. And for the first time in a hundred years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. Now when they talk about the music of dragons, they aren't talking about Rhaegar's playing and singing, although that's obviously a parallel symbol. No, we're talking about real dragons— and you can see that Martin is using words like sing and music in a slightly poetic fashion. The most famous dragon to ever sing the music of dragons was, without a doubt, Balerion the Black Dread. I'll say it again more slowly. Bale Arion. That's right. Bale Arion, the actual black dragon, obviously qualifies as an incarnation of the black dragon archetype, just like his rider, Aegon the Conqueror, and just like Rhaegar. We've already identified Aegon and Rhaegar as Night's King figures, who make symbolic others with their respective Ice Queens, but little did we know that Balerion himself was a Night's King symbol. It makes perfect sense, of course, but it's still amusing. Balerion the Black Bard. <laughs> is it possible that in the books, Balerion will be the dragon who is whited or turned cold instead of Viserion the White Dragon? I'd still bid on Viserion, but if Balerion turns icy somehow... That would then be an extension of him as a Night's King symbol. So yeah, the Bale characters, including Baelarion, seem to be telling us about Night's King. And yes, there is a constant theme of singing and barddom around Night's King. Now you might be saying to yourself, is it really all the Bale characters? What about Baelor the Blessed? How is he a Night's King figure? Well, first of all, as we discussed in Moons of Ice and Fire 3, his sept on Visenya's hill is like a giant symbol of the ice moon, which houses the warrior suns, who symbolize the others. Baylor's statue in front of the sept is indeed an ice dragon symbol, a statue of a dragon made of white marble, which symbolizes ice. Usually the ice moon represents Night's Queen, but think about this. When Night's King gives his seed and soul to Night's Queen, we can think about that as his seed and soul becoming the dragon locked in ice, the dark meteor trapped in the ice moon. When we speak of it as his seed, that would correlate to John as the dragon sperm injected into the womb of Ice Queen Lyanna. When we think of the dragon locked in ice as the soul of the Night's King, then it becomes Night's King himself who is locked in the ice, in the ice moon. Baylor's sept is on top of Visenya's hill, with the hill being much bigger, so it's kind of like the sept of Baylor Targaryen is the dragon locked in the ice moon of Visenya's hill. After all, 
It was the building of Baylor Sept, which started the business of the other like warrior sons crawling all over Visenya's hill, like others pouring out of the ice moon. Baylor also does another Night's King type of thing, which is locking maidens in towers. He famously locks his three sisters in the Maiden Vault. We saw Night's King Stannis lock Val in a tower, and of course we know that Lyanna gave birth in the Tower of Joy with other like Kingsguard standing guard outside. We don't know exactly where Night's King took his corpse queen at the Night Fort, but logic dictates it was the Lord Commander's chambers, which were probably in a tower. I'd say it's a safe bet. Jane Poole is another Night's Queen figure locked in a tower, for what it's worth. And in case you're wondering about Ashara Dane, who leapt to her death from a tower, supposedly, I tend to think she's a Fire Moon Queen as opposed to an Ice Moon Queen because of those purple eyes. But I'm not really sure, by any means. We have so little info about her, it's pretty hard to tell. As for Baylor's three sister wives, who were locked in the Maiden Vault, they all have at least one solid Night's Queen clue. The middle sister, Reyna, was almost as pious as Baylor, and eventually became a Septa, giving her good ice moon symbolism, although no dragons were ever locked in her ice, obviously. The firstborn sister, Dana the Defiant, the mother of Damon Blackfire, used to wear black as a child, but then switched to always wearing white after Baylor was unable to consummate their marriage on their wedding night. That's not bad for symbolism, but it's not overwhelming either, until one of your mythology friends pipes up and informs you that the Greek Danae, D-A-N-A-E, as opposed to Dana, was a daughter of the king of Argos, who was also locked in a tower to prevent her from becoming pregnant. That's just what happened to me. No, I wasn't locked in a tower to prevent me from becoming pregnant. I mean that my mythology friend, Crowfood's daughter, at Crowfood underscore SD on Twitter, piped up and filled me in on the Greek Danae, and now I can include her in the essay just where she belongs. Locked in a tower, unfortunately, like Dana the Defiant. More on the Greek Danae in a second. It's really Elena, the youngest sister of Baylor Targaryen, where the really, really good symbolism is. She had hair that was platinum white, with a bright gold streak, and a dragon's egg whose shell matched her hair. White dragons can be potent white meteor or ice dragon symbols, or even symbols of the others themselves, as we know. But it actually gets worse because Elena married Ossifer Plum and had a son named Viserys, a name shared with another white dragon, Viserion. It's well possible that Elena named her son Viserys Plum after her uncle Viserys I Targaryen, who became king after Baylor died. Viserys Plum's descendant is Brown Ben Plum, who famously got along well with Danny's dragons. In particular, he got along with Viserion, the white one, of course. Surrounding Elena Targaryen with all this white dragon symbolism and the names Viserion and Viserys serves to equate her with Visenya Targaryen, a terrific Night's Queen figure. In fact, think about this. If Elena is the Night's Queen figure, then she's analogous to the Ice Moon. Ossifer Plum, let's call him Lucifer Plum, would be the Night's King figure. Their child should represent either John or the others, and they named him Viserys, which is now a white dragon name. And in keeping with a lot of the symbolism of the dark Solar King figures being undead or dead, there's a funny little story about Ossifer Plum conceiving Viserys Plum with Elena Targaryen, which is hinted at by Tyrion when he talks to Brown Ben Plum in a dance with dragons. I know you as well, my lord, said Tyrion. 
You're less purple and more brown than the plums at home. But unless your name's a lie, you're a Westerman. By blood, if not birth. House Plum is sworn to Casterly Rock. And as it happens, I know a bit of its history. Your branch sprouted from a stone spit across the narrow sea, no doubt. A younger son of Viserys Plum, I'd wager. The Queen's dragons were fond of you, were they not? That seemed to amuse the sellsword. Who told you that? No one. Most of the stories you hear about dragons are fodder for fools. Talking dragons, dragons hoarding gold and gems, dragons with four legs and bellies big as elephants, dragons riddling with sphinxes. Nonsense. All of it. But there are truths in the old books as well. Not only do I know that the Queen's dragons took to you, but I know why. My mother said my father had a drop of dragon's blood. Two drops. That, or a cock six feet long. You know that tale? I do. The joke here comes from the fact that Ossifer Plum was very old when he married Elena, and reportedly died at the bedding ceremony following their wedding. Yet Elena still gave birth nine months later, and the rumor is that Aegon IV, Aegon the Unworthy, was the actual father. That's what Tyrion means when he says that his father might have two drops of dragon blood, one from Elena and one from Aegon the Unworthy. The only way that isn't the case would be if old man Ossifer had a cock six feet long, meaning that he was able to reach out from the grave and impregnate Elena. Think of Davos's observation that Stannis looks to have one foot in the grave, and remember that he looks that way because he's been giving his seed and soul to Melisandre to make shadow children, and Night's King gave his seed and soul to Night's Queen. That means that, symbolically, Night's King is sort of also implied as a dead person who still impregnates someone. The line about Brown Ben being sprouted from a stone seems like a humorous way of talking about meteors and moons as parents and children, if you ask me, and of course the joke Tyrion is making refers to the younger son of Viserys Plum that must have crossed the narrow sea as the stone of a plum fruit. It's actually a very good way of showing meteor childbirth. The meteor child is the heart of a fallen plum, instead of the heart of a fallen star. So, that's a long way to follow the thread of white dragon symbolism leading from Baelor the Blessed, priest-king of the Ice Dragon Temple, but it's cool to see how consistent George is with his symbolism. If he needs to invent more House Plum backstory for Brown Ben in The Winds of Winter, expect more white dragon symbolism. All right, well, that's King Baylor Targaryen, locker aware of Ice Queens. He's not a perfect Night's King match, but sometimes Martin has fun playing with your expectations. He does that through symbolism, as we've just seen, but he does that in the main story anyway. Baylor is beloved as a blessed holy man, but Tyrion calls him Baylor the Befuddled, and in The Sworn Sword, Sir Eustace Osgrey calls him the feeblest king who ever sat on the Iron Throne. He may well have starved himself to death after Dana the Defiant gave birth to Damon Blackfire, then called Damon Waters, by living on bread and water for 41 days until he expired. That maiden vault was some whack-ass shit, too, you have to admit. I suppose a little Bale mythology might be appropriate here. It seems like there are a couple of mythological figures who inspired George to associate characters that have Bale-related names with Night's King. First of all, Baal, which is spelled B-A apostrophe A-L, of Canaanite myth, is kind of the original horned god, 
and he does the standard horn god, fertility god routine of being killed in the fall and resurrected in the spring. I talked about all the horned god mythology in the Sacred Order of Green Zombies series, so that's the place to look for all that. But you'll probably recall that we found strong horned god symbolism around Azor High and the Last Hero, and around figures like John and Mance and Stannis. The horned god can certainly be a musician. Pan is one version of this figure, after all. And, of course, Pan uses his music to bewitch and entrance. An even more potent myth that George seems to be referencing with the Bale names comes from Irish folklore, which is a well we already know George likes to draw from. I'm speaking of Baelor, king of the Fomorians, who was a giant with a large eye in his forehead that wrought serious destruction when opened. He's also called King of Demons, and according to Wikipedia, it is suggested that Baelor comes from the common Celtic Baelaros, B-A-L-E-R-O-S, meaning the deadly one, which is a cognate with the Irish at Baal, dies, and the Welsh Baal, which means death or plague. Three of Baelor's nicknames are translated as Baelor the Smiter, Baelor the Strong Smiter, and Baelor of the Piercing Eye, which later became Baelor of the Evil Eye. So you kind of get the idea. He's a death god who brings dread and woe. The word Balaros sounds very close to Balerion, and given Balerion's Black Dread nickname, we can see that George is using the meaning of the Irish Balor's name as well, potentially. Balerion and all Black Dread figures are representative of the A Song of Ice and Fire death god, also called Him of Many Faces, the Lion of Night, the Stranger, etc. That's cool and everything, but let me show you the even more obvious tip-off, that this Baylor myth is a myth Martin is thinking of, which is this. Baylor locks his only daughter, Ethniu, in a tower to prevent her from becoming pregnant, just as Baylor Targaryen locks his sister wives in a tower to prevent them from becoming pregnant. The Irish Baylor does this because it is prophesied that Baylor would be killed by his grandson. And of course, this happens anyway, as his daughter becomes pregnant and her son Lou leads the Tuatha de Danann in rebellion against the Fomorians and Baelor. I would see the parallel to this as Baelor Targaryen locking up his sister wives, one of whom gives birth to Daemon Blackfire, who led the largest rebellion against the Targaryen dynasty in their history as kings of Westeros. And didn't we just say that the Greek Danae was also locked up in a tower to prevent her pregnancy, just like the daughter of Baelor of the Evil Eye? It's actually an even closer parallel between the myths when we look at the Danae story again. She, too, eventually became pregnant. Horny old Zeus saw her imprisoned and became a golden rain which left her pregnant. And yeah, the dirty joke is implied in the myth. And just like Baylor's daughter giving birth to a hero who grew up and killed Baylor, Danae gives birth to the famous hero Perseus, who eventually killed his grandfather. This time it was an accident. Perseus was throwing the discus at the athletic games, which his grandfather attended, and an errant throw struck him in the head. There's also a prophecy involved there, just as with the Baylor story. In both cases, it's prophesied that the daughter, who is locked in the tower, will give birth to a son that will kill the grandfather, who likes to lock women in towers. And it is these prophecies in both stories that lead Baylor and his Greek counterpart, Acrisius, king of Argos, to lock their virgin daughters in towers to begin with. 
Needless to say, these two myths, when compared with Baylor Targaryen's wife having a son who rebelled against the royal dynasty, pour a lot more fuel on the fire of our theory about the last hero being a son or close relative of Night's King. I also think it's just plain cool how George managed to weave the Irish Baylor of the Evil Eye myth and the Greek Danae myth together in the story of Baylor and Dana Targaryen. As for the mythical astronomy of the Baylor of the Evil Eye myth, I can only say wowzers. Baylor, king of demons and Fomorians, the latter of whom may well have been part of the inspiration for the others, by the way, has some sort of destructive eye, and by destructive, I mean forest-burning, earth-moving destructive. Kind of reminds me of my notion of the celestial god's eye, from whence the deadly meteors came. And you're not going to believe this, but listen to what happens when Baylor is killed by his grandson Lug, and here I'll quote from Wikipedia. One legend tells that when Baylor was slain by Lug, Baylor's eye was still open when he fell face first into the ground. Thus, his deadly eye beam burned a hole into the earth. Long after, the hole filled with water and became a lake, which is now known as Loch Nesweel, or Lake of the Eye, in County Sligo. Lake of the Eye and formed by a slain god. Kind of sounds like the god's eye lake, does it not? In other words, the Irish Baylor legend would seem to contain the inspiration for both the destructive celestial god's eye idea, as well as the god's eye lake. This is a myth that was probably in George's mind when he wrote the battle over the god's eye scene with Daemon Targaryen and Aemon One-Eye, which gave us Night's King figures and a white dragon plunging into the lake like Baylor's severed head falling from the sky. You guys don't even know how long I've been saving this one. It's been maybe like a year and a half or something, I don't know. What's really great about this is that aligning Baylor's baleful eye with the God's Eye Eclipse formation makes Baylor's falling head with its deadly eye beam blazing equivalent to a falling moon meteor, and that makes perfect sense. That's what Baelarion, the Black Dread, represents as well. The black meteors that fell from the God's Eye in the sky and brought darkness and dread just like Baylor, the Smiter. If you think about it, this also kind of suggests that the God's Eye Lake might have been created via a meteor impact, although I think it probably would have had to have been a much older impact, as crater lakes take thousands of years to form, although he may be playing fast and loose with the physics, which is acceptable in a fantasy novel, of course. Here I'd like to give a big shout-out to An American Thinks on YouTube, who arrived at the meteor origin for the God's Eye Lake idea through an entirely different line of research. You can find those videos titled God's Eye 1, 2, and 3 on his YouTube channel, An American Thinks, and I highly recommend checking those out. They're pretty great. Returning to the Baylor of the Evil Eye tale, we find that, even better for mythical astronomy, Lug kills Baylor by throwing a magical spear through his baleful eye, very like all the dragon-eye-spearing ideas in A Song of Ice and Fire, which I would say refer to the piercing of the celestial god's eye by the comet, such as the legend of Serwin of the Mirror Shield slaying the dragon Urex. It's not that different from Perseus hitting his grandfather in the head with a discus, for that matter. Also, ancient man has been symbolizing comets and meteors as discuses and frisbees for thought. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, to sum up, I think we can say that given the Locking Maidens in Towers connection to Baylor Targaryen, the overlaps with the Greek Danae myth that also play into the Baylor the Blessed story, plus these awesome mythical astronomy connections, this Baylor myth is definitely a myth that George has drawn inspiration from. 
We can also deduce that it probably shaped his decision to use variants of the Bale name for many of his Knight's King figures. Most of them, actually. The theme of being slain by your descendant, present in both the Irish Baylor legend and the Greek Dene legend, has us once again suspecting that the last hero may have been the son or nephew or recent descendant of Knight's King. And that's before we consider our final Baylor influence from world mythology, Belan and Baylin, two brother knights from Arthurian myth who tragically kill each other. And here I'll just quickly apologize if I'm pronouncing these wrong. The spellings are B-A-L-A-N and B-A-L-I-N, and I'm going to sort of overpronounce the difference between them so that you always know who I'm talking about. Anyways, uh, I owe a large hat tip to Crowfood's daughter here, without whom I would have been entirely ignorant of this mythology. Now, we don't need to go too deep into Arthurian myth, and admittedly, I am not an expert on Arthurian myth, but the broad strokes of this tale are highly relevant, particularly because this tale intersects with the Holy Grail mythology, including the Fisher King and the Dolorous Stroke. You could really do an entire essay about these ideas and their influence on A Song of Ice and Fire, so please understand that I am summarizing significantly here. There's also the issue of there being several variants of the story, as with a lot of Arthurian myth, and with world myth in general. All right, so Sir Balin the Savage is kind of the main character, with his brother Balan serving as more of an adjunct. Balin is a somewhat tragic figure who struggles with fits of melancholy or fits of rage. His brother Balan acts as a good influence, helping to limit the damage of these spells and helping Balin eventually to learn to control them. Balin is in possession of a magic sword, it should be noted, which is also cursed. But the most famous weapon that Balin uses is called the Spear of Longinus. That's supposedly the spear that a Roman soldier used to pierce the side of the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the circumstances of the tale place Sir Balin in the castle of King Pelham, who is the Grail King. And after an unfortunate fight breaks out, Balin ends up using this holy spear of Longinus to inflict what is known as the Dolorous Stroke on the Grail King Pelham. Now, the Wounded King figure is also known as the Fisher King, although sometimes they can be split into father and son characters in some versions. And the idea is that the Dolorous Stroke is an allusion to castration. It's usually described as an inner thigh wound, as a way of sort of cleaning up the story, but symbolically, it's a blow which ruins the king's fertility, and everybody in the audience at that time would have understood that it was a castration blow. Now, in this kind of mythology, the vitality of the king is seen as being tied to the health of the land. Think of fat and jolly King Robert ruling over a long, bountiful summer, for example. And then when the Grail King receives the dolorous stroke, injuring or maiming his fertility, the land turns to ruin and famine. This is actually what sets the stage for the Grail Quest, which is completed by Sir Galahad, who in some versions is actually the grandson of Pelham, or Pelham's brother. Now here's how this translates to a song of ice and fire. Our Bale character, Sir Balin the Savage, strikes a magical wound which turns the land to blight. Just as Night's King may be the same person as Azor High, the man who broke the moon and killed Nissa Nissa and caused the long night. In terms of mythical astronomy, the Solar King kills his lunar wife, of course, but he himself is also wounded and weakened. Now, this would be the dark sun of the long night perceived as a weakened and blighted Solar King, ruling over a blighted and drought-filled land, just like the Grail King. 
Interestingly, in some Fisher King stories, the wounded Grail King is wounded as punishment for taking a wife, which the guardians of the Grail are not supposed to do. That kind of reminds us of the idea of Night's King breaking his Night's Watch vows and taking Night's Queen to wife. The other relevant part of Sir Balin's story is that he mistakenly kills his brother, Balan, who was in a kind of disguise wearing someone else's armor. Most tales have them dying in each other's arms, realizing their tragic mistake only after mortally wounding one another. George gives us a version of this story with a pair of twin brothers who both joined the Kingsguard, Eric and Arik Cargill. The most complete recounting of this tragic event that occurred during the Dance of the Dragons comes from the world of ice and fire, though it's also referenced several times in the story proper. Even the Kingsguard were enlisted into the strife. Sir Criston Cole dispatched Sir Eric Cargill to Dragonstone with the intention of having him infiltrate the Citadel in the guise of his twin, Sir Eric. There, he was to kill Rayana or her children. Accounts differ, yet as chance would have it, Sir Eric and Sir Eric met by happenstance in one of the halls of the Citadel. The singers tell us that they professed their love for one another before the steel clashed and fought with love and duty in their hearts for an hour before they died weeping in one another's arms. The account of Mushroom, who claims to have witnessed the duel, says the reality was far more brutal. They condemned one another for traitors, and within moments had mortally wounded each other. So there you go. It's pretty much the same story, save that Eric and Arik did actually recognize each other, unlike Balin and Bilan. More importantly, we are thinking of how Night's King was thrown down by his brother, Brandon the Breaker, which gives us a Bale figure, Night's King, killed by his brother, something like Balin and Bilan. At this point, you can see that George has created his Night's King mythology by drawing on various tales which involve either brother-brother killings and or kings who are killed by their children and grandchildren. Heck, one of the oldest brother-versus-brother tales probably deserves a quick mention here as well, and that's the biblical story of Cain and Abel. Since George specifically points out that Abel is an anagram of Baal when man supposed as Abel to sneak into Winterfell, we are probably supposed to lump Abel, the slain brother, into the wider context of Night's King background mythology. Now, I'm not sure how much... Our baleful Night's King character correlates to the sweet and innocent Abel of the Bible, but it is, nevertheless, yet another brother's fighting myth that is being referenced, and so deserves mention. I'd also like to direct you to Crow Food's daughter's essays on these topics, which are fantastic, and I will put a link to that on the essay version of this podcast at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. I'm also very pleased to announce that, appropriately, Crow Food's daughter will be my special guest on our Q&A live stream, which will follow the release of this episode by about a week, and it will be, as all live streams are, on a Saturday at 3.30 Eastern, about a week after this comes out. So tune in and come hang out with me and Crow Food's daughter, because it's going to be fun. She actually just started her own YouTube channel after being an essay writer for a long time, and that channel is called The Disputed Lands, and the first video is about Shade of the Evening, and the oily black stone, so yeah, that sounds interesting, right? Anyway, we have more bale and bard figures left to look at, so we'll bear these themes of kinslaying in mind as we go and see what we find. A bale full of bards. 
This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of three new acolytes of Starry Wisdom. Matanus, Alaskan god of thunder and sex, the cookie burner. Ben Brown Plum, Archmaster of the Haunted Forest. And Laurel of House Hilldigger, the Antiquarian, Weaver of Ancient Knowledge. Now you guys know how George does his symbolism. He lays it on thick, with many, many examples of a given idea for us to find and connect. Bale the Bard and Baylor Targaryen and Beleriand the Black Dread aren't the end of it, oh no. Baylor Breakspear is the other famous Baylor, and although he's quite a nice guy and doesn't lock any maidens in any towers, he is a black dragon figure, the one time that we see him in armor at the tourney of Ashford Meadow. This is from The Hedge Knight, the first of the three Duncan Egg novellas. Then came a voice. I will take Sir Duncan's side. A black stallion emerged from out of the river mists. A black knight on his back, Dunk, saw the dragon shield and the red enamel crest upon his helm with its three roaring heads. The young prince. God be good. Is it truly him? Lord Ashford made the same mistake. Prince Valar? No. The black knight lifted the visor of his helm. I did not think to enter the lists at Ashford, my lord. So I brought no armour. My son was good enough to lend me his. Prince Baylor smiled almost sadly. I just love how Baylor is called the Black Knight twice here, and how he rides out of the river mists in such dramatic fashion, after first beginning as a disembodied voice. His sad smile foreshadows his imminent death, which comes as a result of a blow he takes during the Trial of Seven. That blow came from his brother Makar, and although it wasn't intended to kill, it unfortunately fractured his skull, and getting killed by your brother is a match for the Legend of Night's King. And Balin and Balan, of course. In fact, this tale hits on an element of the Sir Balin story that Eric and Arik do not, which is the sort of tragic misunderstanding aspect. Makar and Balor don't mistake one another, but they are friends, and Makar certainly did not mean to kill his brother. As a historical echo of Night's King and Brandon the Breaker, things are kind of all scrambled around. Makar parallels Brandon the Breaker since he's killing a black dragon Bale figure, but Baylor is the one named as a breaker via his Breakspear nickname. In fact, Baylor Breakspear compares well to the last hero, since he switches sides for the Trial of Seven and fights against the other like Kingsguard. Shades of our rescued other baby as the last hero fighting his would-be other brothers, right? Baylor's Breakspear nickname kind of evokes the broken sword motif that all last hero characters seem to manifest as well. I also wonder if the Spear of Longinus that Balin used to wound the Grail King Pelham is being referenced here. Another similarity to the Balin tale is that Balor is wearing someone else's armor, as Balin's brother Balan did. Makar, meanwhile, has a wife, Diana Dane, whose name rhymes with Lion. He lives at Summerhall, which is of course notably tied to Night's King figure Rhaegar. He's also the one who has a child taken from him, which of course would be Egg, who was taken by Dunk right after this tourney. As for Dunk, he'd seem to fit well with our other rescuer figures like Ned, Sam, and Coldhands. I can't help noticing that all of these people have a similar personality. Honorable, steadfast, resolute, and humble. Now we can't talk about Baylor Breakspear without speaking of Baylor Breakwind. 
That's right. There's a very minor character in the current timeline named Baylor, who's actually on the other side of the battle lines from Euron and his Ironborn fleet. That's Baylor Hightower, son and heir of Lord Leighton Hightower, who's seeing to the defenses of Old Town by building new ships for the fleet. He's also the one whom a young Oberyn Martell nicknames Baylor Breakwind after he farted in his and Elia's presence while courting Elia. There's not too much to say about Baylor Hightower, save that the Hightowers are said to descend from the traitors and seafarers who came to Old Town before the First Men, who would have been the folks of the Great Empire of the Dawn, of course, some of whom would have been the Dragon Lords, responsible for building the few stone fortress at Battle Isle, future site of the Hightower of Old Town. The Hightowers may be of the same blood as Azora High, in other words, just as the Danes probably are, and indeed, Baylor Hightower seems like an early phase Azor High figure more than anything else. After the Baylor Breakwind nickname wears off, he's called Baylor Bright Smile, and he's married to a weirwood goddess figure, Rhonda of House Rowan. And you'll recall that a Rowan tree is also called Mountain Ash, and that Yggdrasil of Norsemith is an ash tree, and that the weirwoods are heavily based on Yggdrasil. Additionally, the lords of House Hightower wear cloaks of flame and smoke, which increases Baylor Brightsmile's likeness to the heralded warrior of fire and champion of Relore. You'll recall that earlier I said it's very possible that Nissa Nissa was from Westeros, and that Azor Ahai had a child or children with her before her death, and that the Danes seem to represent this kind of union. The blood of the dragon from the Great Empire of the Dawn merged with the blood of the First Men, possibly the children of the forest. The same symbolism seems to apply to the Hightowers, and thus Baylor himself, or his child by a Rowan maiden, could symbolize the child of Azor High and Nissa Nissa. I further speculated that it may have been this child of Azor High and Nissa Nissa who became Night's King, as opposed to Azor High himself, which would be roughly equivalent to Baylor's bright smile turning dark, as his Baylor name suggests it should, or to Baylor and Rhonda Rowan's child becoming a Night's King figure. Last but not least, Baylor Hightower has a brother named Garth. Garth of the Hightower. That's quite a concept. Of course, the Hightowers claim descent from Garth Greenhand by way of the legendary marriage between Garth's daughter, Maris the Most Fair, and the founder of House Hightower with a very dragony name, Uthor of the Hightower. That marriage depicts the same symbolism as Baylor marrying a woman of House Rowan and that would be a dragon person, marrying some sort of tree maiden or elf woman. A daughter of Garth the Green certainly counts in that regard. Additionally, since we've seen the brothers fighting so often with Night's King figures, one could almost imagine a fight between Baylor and Garth, as representing the bright solar king, Garth, against the Night's King figure, Baylor. Right now, Baylor Hightower is implied as a bright solar figure via his bright smile nickname, so perhaps there is an element of the original story where both brothers start out bright, if you will, and one turns evil while one does not, a la Brandon the Breaker Stark throwing down the evil Night's King. At this point, I'd like to pause and point out how many of our Bale-slash-Night's King figures are dragon-related. Rhaegar, Aegon the Conqueror, Balerion, Baylor the Blessed Targaryen, Baylor Breakspear Targaryen, and even Baylor Hightower is symbolically linked to dragons via his house. Stannis has a bit of Targaryen blood, 
John obviously does, and Euron wants to ride dragons, wears Valerian steel armor, and sports the dragonbinder horn. All I'm saying is, if Night's King was a blood of the dragon person, then all of that makes sense. Moving right along, we have Baylor Blacktide, an ironborn captain in the current storyline who commands a ship called Nightflyer. The ship's name tips us off that this is a knight-associated fellow, and indeed, his black sable cloak is eventually taken by Night's King figure Euron. Obviously, the idea of a black tide is a version of the Waves of Night symbolism that represents the darkness of the long night. Black tide, night flyer, black cloak, it's all pretty consistent. Baylor also worships the Seven, which you could see as an association with the warrior suns and the Sept of Baylor, and therefore with the others in the Ice Moon. Worshipping the Seven is also considered somewhat heretical on the Iron Islands, which kind of fits the general vibe of evil Azor High and Night's King as blasphemers and usurpers. Here I'll pass along a nice wordplay find by Ravenous Reader, the poetess of the Nenimones, concerning the Sable Cloak. The Say Bale Cloak. Say Bale. You don't say. Baylor has the Say Bale Cloak. Euron wears it later. And don't forget Sir Waymar from the prologue, whose sable cloak was his crowning glory and was soft as sin, wording which also implied the black crown symbolism of the dark solar king. It was actually mentioned six times in the prologue. Sir Jeremy Riker of the Night's Watch also has a black cloak trimmed in sable, or at least he did, until he was killed by the cold-whited Jafer flowers, just as Waymar, with the sable cloak, was killed by the others. Interestingly, Jeremy's sable cloak was taken from him and worn by another, Thorn Smallwood, just as Euron took Baylor Blacktide's sable cloak. It's somewhat reminiscent of Sir Balan wearing the armor of another when he was killed by his brother Balin. There's not much to say about Thorn Smallwood, the man who took Sir Jeremy's sable-lined cloak. His name is taken from Thorn Oakenshield, a dwarf from Lord of the Rings, and he's killed by a whited snow bear at the Fist of the First Men. Perhaps more importantly, Thorin speaks up for Craster as a friend to the Watch on a couple of occasions. It's kind of funny, actually. Dywin and Thorin Smallwood have this running thing going where Dywin, who has wooden teeth, is pro-Weirwood and anti-Craster, while Thorin Smallwood, whose name implies making trees shorter, i.e. chopping them down, hates the Weirwood trees and wants to cut them down, but loves Craster. Just listen to this shit. Thorin Smallwood dismounted beside the trunk, dark in his plate and mail. Look at the face. Small wonder men feared them when they first came to Westeros. I'd like to take an axe to the bloody thing myself. Smallwood, small wonder, wants to make the trees smaller. Like I said, it's kind of funny. Frankly, that whited snow bear gave him what he had coming to him. Dywin, on the other hand, is a forester and can smell when the whites are getting closer at the fist. Anyways, say Bale Cloak. It's pretty clever. Just another bale on the wall. This section is sponsored by three new acolytes of the Church of Starry Wisdom. Venjeri's Targaryen, Witch Mother of the Kingswood. Virginie the Selicarian, Master of Homing Away. And the Dread Pirate Baron, the Demon Deacon, whose direwolf is called Megantic. Speaking of the Ironborn and people named Balin and Balon and Bale and other things like that, 
How about Balin Greyjoy, Lord Reaper of Pike? Well, he's called the Lord Reaper, like the Grim Reaper, obviously. And that's how you make a bale of hay, after all. First you have to reap. Lord Reaper Balin wears a black iron crown, and he's a usurper, like Night's King. He's killed by his brother Euron, like the Night's King legend, and like the tale of Sir Balin and Balan. He declares war on Winterfell, which is kind of like Night's King battling against the Stark of Winterfell. Balin's throne is carved from an oily black stone, the kind of thing that would have the Bloodstone Emperor saying, Hey man, that's a nice chair. In fact, the World of Ice and Fire tells us that at 15 he spent a summer in the Stepstones, reaving, which means that Balin was yet another Dark Solar King to hang out on Bloodstone Island. All in all, that's a pretty good start for Balin as a Night's King figure. Balin Greyjoy's current wife is Alanis Harlaw, Alanis, Lyanna, hmm, who has some corpse queen symbolism in these two quotes from Asha Greyjoy, her daughter. First, Asha says to Theon in A Clash of Kings that the cold winds have worn her away. And obviously cold winds is one of those trigger phrases that makes us think of the North and the others. Better yet is this passage from A Feast for Crows, from a chapter titled The Kraken's Daughter. Even now. It was hard to credit that frail, sickly Lady Alanis had outlived her husband, Lord Balon, who had seemed so hard and strong. When Asher had sailed away to war, she had done so with a heavy heart, fearing that her mother might well die before she could return. Not once had she thought that her father might perish instead. The drowned god plays savage japes upon us all, but men are crueler still. A sudden storm and a broken rope had sent Balon Greyjoy to his death, or so they claim. Asher had last seen her mother when she stopped at Ten Towers to take on fresh water, on her way north to strike at Deepwood Mott. Alanis Harlow never had the sort of beauty the singers cherished, but her daughter had loved her fierce strong face and the laughter in her eyes. On that last visit, though, she had found Lady Alanis in a window seat, huddled beneath a pile of furs, staring out across the sea. Is this my mother, or her ghost? She remembered thinking, as she'd kissed her cheek. Her mother's skin had been parchment thin, her long hair white. Some pride remained in the way she'd held her head, but her eyes were dim and cloudy, and her mouth had trembled when she asked after Theon. Did you bring my baby boy? She had asked. Theon had been ten years old when he was carried off to Winterfell a hostage, and so far as Lady Alanis was concerned, he would always be ten years old, it seemed. All right, so Lady Alanis begins with the Grim Reaper symbolism of the Harlaw Scythe as a backdrop, and then we see that she has white hair, skin like parchment, and that she's like a ghost. She's very like a living corpse, in other words, kind of like Jane Poole. That fits the Corpse Queen description of Night's Queen, and Lady Alanis is in a tower, like so many of our Ice Queen figures, with the image of her weak and frail and huddling under furs, again reminding us a bit of Jane Poole. But what should really have grabbed your attention was the fact that she is fixated on her lost son. That's right, Theon, who actually plays the rescuer figure role with a possibly pregnant Jane Poole in A Dance with the Dragons, is himself a rescued Night's King, Night's Queen baby. Alanis refers to Theon as my baby boy repeatedly to emphasize the idea. And where was young Theon, son of Night's King Balin, carried off to by Ned the Rescuer slash Baby Stealer? 
Winterfell, of course. Where else? Eventually, Theon becomes the very temporary Lord of Winterfell, and then later, after his reification and the beginning of his journey back to becoming Theon, he embraces his status as an honorary Stark, thinking that his gray skin makes him a Stark at last, disgraced though he may be. Theon's father, Balon, specifically accuses him of being more loyal to the Starks than his native Ironborn, and this is exactly what would have happened to the rescued-slash-stolen Night's King baby, who would have been loyal to the Starks and indeed would have become a Stark. It's also what happened to Bale the Bard's son, who became a Stark, and then slew his father when he invaded Westeros with a wildling army. It's almost as if mankind is stealing an other and turning him against his former other brothers, training him to guard against the others. Let's pause with Theon for a bit of insight on this principle from King Garth Gardner the Ninth, as recorded in The World of Ice and Fire. The three sage kings also found lands and lordships for the more powerful of the Andal kings descending on the reach in return for pledges of fealty. The gardeners sought after Andal craftsmen as well and encouraged their lord's bannermen to do the same. Blacksmiths and stonemasons in particular were handsomely rewarded. The former taught the first men to arm and armour themselves in iron in place of bronze. The latter helped them strengthen the defences of their castles and holdfasts. And though some of these new-made lords forswore their vows in later years, most did not. Rather, they joined with their liege lords to put down such rebels and defended the reach against those Andal kings and warbands who came later. When a wolf descends upon your flocks, all you gain by killing him is a short respite. For other wolves will come, King Garth the Ninth said famously. If instead you feed the wolf and tame him and turn his pups into your guard dogs, they will protect the flocks when the pack comes ravening. This is the exact principle that I'm talking about, and we're even using wolves as an analogy. That's awesome. The stolen other baby turned Stark is very much like a tamed wolf, trained to kill the others. Of course, no one is better at taming wolves than wargs, and it seems that that's kind of a Stark thing. Perhaps it's better to think of the Starks as trained wolves more than tamed wolves, as I think that's more apt. Returning to our analysis of Theon as a baby stolen from Night's King and turned into a Stark, there's a couple of things to note about his abduction from Pike. As you can see, Ned is once again in the rescuer child collector role, as he was at the Tower of Joy. Also sighted at the Storming of Pike were a couple of guys with flaming swords, Thoros and Beric. Like the Tower of Joy, this battle seems like it could easily read as a metaphor or an echo of the War for the Dawn, or at least some part of it, with our signature knight's king and queen baby being rescued or stolen by Starks and people with flaming swords. Fast-forwarding to Theon's short time as the Lord of Winterfell, there's a cool reference to Bale the Bard. The killing stopped after Farland's death, but even so, his men continued sullen and anxious. They fear no foe in open battle, Black Lauren told him, but it's another thing to dwell among enemies, never knowing if the washerwoman means to kiss you or kill you, or whether the serving boy is filling your cup with ale or bale. We would do well to leave this place. I am the Prince of Winterfell, Theon had shouted. This is my seat. No man will drive me from it. No, no woman either. 
That's an especially fun quote as it contains nods to both the Bail the Bard myth, the serving boy filling Theon's cup with ale or bale, and to Mance's future escapades sneaking into Winterfell disguised as Abel and accompanied by six washerwomen. The reason why I say that is because of the fact that one of Abel's washerwomen, Rowan, does later threaten to both kiss and kill Theon in a sort of delayed fulfillment of Black Lorne's warning to Theon about washerwomen who could either kiss or kill you. Another parallel to the Bale legend is taking place at the same time as this conversation occurs, as Bran, Rickon, Osha, Jojen, Mira, and Hodor are hiding in the Winterfell crypts, just as Bale and his Stark Maiden did. Now, as it happens, Balon Greyjoy isn't the only Balon in Ironborn history. He's not even the only Balon Greyjoy. You all know how much I love the world of ice and fire, precisely because George seems to have used it as an opportunity to reinforce a lot of the symbolic ideas that he created in the main series. For example, there are two Balans spoken of in the Iron Islands section of the World Book, and here's the first one, who is also a Greyjoy. In the century that followed, a succession of weaker kings lost the arbor, Bear Island, Flint's Finger, and most of the iron-born enclaves along the Sunset Sea, until only a handful remained. It must not be thought that the Ironborn won no victories during these years. Balon the Fifth Greyjoy, called Cold Wind, destroyed the feeble fleets of the king in the north. Aha! Balin Coldwind, battling against the king in the north, as Night's King battled against the king of winter, Brandon the Breaker. That certainly sounds like Night's King, with the cold winds of winter at his back, does it not? Of course, this works as a compliment to the Balin Greyjoy of the main story, who is Balin the Ninth, in case you were curious, who attacks and temporarily conquers the north. Once again, I will remind you of all of the symbolism that equates the drowned men of the Ironborn with the others that we looked at in Moons of Ice and Fire 4, the long night was his to rule. Balin Coldwind, leading drowned men, is absolutely symbolic of Night's King invading with the others. He's invading the North and fighting against the King of Winter just as he should be. In fact, Reddit user Diatonics recently pointed out to me that there is an other's double entendre in the famous quote about Euron as a squid shadow with a black eye that I apparently had not noticed before. This quote begins with Tyrion speaking to Makoro. Have you seen the others in your fires? He asked warily. Only their shadows, Makoro said. One, most of all, a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms, sailing on a sea of blood. Throw it on the pile of wordplay and symbolism, implying that Euron has a connection to the others, or at least that his Bloodstone Emperor Night's King archetype does. All right, so our second Ironborn Balon is one of the more magical-sounding fellows in Iron Island's folklore. Many legends have come down to us through the millennia of the salt kings and reavers who made the sunset sea their own, men as wild and cruel and fearless as any who have ever lived. Thus we hear of the likes of Torgon the Terrible, Jaw the Whale, Dagon Drum the Necromancer, Hrothgar of Pike, and his kraken-summoning Horn, and ragged Ralph of Old Wick. Most infamous of all was Balon Blackskin, who fought with an axe in his left hand, and a hammer in his right. No weapon made of man could harm him, it was said. Swords glanced off him and left no mark, 
and axes shattered against his skin. I don't know what the truth of this legend is. It's most likely that it's a legend that sprung up from the first ironborn to wear black iron plate while reaving, which would have seemed magical to the ones who saw it for the first time. But as for the symbolic message, it's more than just Balin Blackskin being associated with black like Night's King, who wore a black cloak of the Night's Watch. Think of some of the magical black armor that we've seen on a couple of our Night's King characters. John has his dream of being armored in black ice, and Euron Greyjoy has that suit of Valyrian steel in The Forsaken, both scenes that we've quoted recently from in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. It's kind of like the Sabale cloak, but upgraded. The last quoted passage goes on to ask the question whether such fearsome men as Balin Blackskin, Dagon Drum, and all the rest are at all historical or just the stuff of legend, and then goes on to talk about how terrifying the Ironborn Reavers would have been to the first men of the mainland, who had vastly inferior weapons, armor, and seafaring skill. Then we get one of my favorite passages about the Ironborn, which seems very similar to the Balin Blackskin legend, and that would be the one that tells us that the men of the Greenlands told each other that the Ironborn were demons risen from some watery hell, protected by fell sorceries and possessed of foul black weapons that drank the very souls of those they slew. Protected by fell sorceries sounds an awful lot like magical armor, as Balin Blackskin may have had and as Euron does have. The other runic armor that we hear of in the story is that of House Royce, as in Waymar Royce, whose crowning glory was the softest in Sable Cloak. As for those foul black soul-drinking weapons, I've cited them before as being connected to the hypothetically black Lightbringer sword that I believe Azor High came to Westeros with, since that drank the soul of Nissa Nissa. But if we want to think about this more practically, it's likely that these foul black weapons were just another dramatic retelling of what it must have been like to be the first people to fight against weapons made of black iron. Overall, I think we can say that the three Balons in Ironborn history, as well as Balor Blacktide, fit in very well with everything we think we know about Night's King. That tells us that we are well on the way to uncovering a specific archetype. The last Balon, and you got my Bale-on-the-wall joke, right? In A Song of Ice and Fire, is from the current story, and he's a white shadow knight of the Kingsguard. I'm giving you hints in case you'd like to guess. And of course, I'm speaking of Balin Swan, the Kingsguard who was sent to Dorne to bring Marcella back after his white sword brother Ari's Oakheart was killed during Aryan Martell's failed plot to crown Marcella. Besides being a white shadow, House Swan has that oh so very Taoist sigil of the black and white swans combatant countercharged on black and white fields. In other words, that's a black swan on a white field and a white swan on a black field who are getting ready to fight. So given that the White Shadow Brothers of the Kingsguard are modeled after the Black Shadow Brothers of the Night's Watch, that black and white swan sigil sure reads like the others battling the Night's Watch. Which is what Night's King is all about, and in fact, this is probably just more confirmation that Night's King, that his story was involved with the Wharf of the Dawn, the great fight between the Black Brothers and the White Others. All right, so the brothers' fighting motif is actually very, very present in a scene with Sir Balon Swan from A Storm of Swords. Right after Jaime gets back to King's Landing, he's sort of interviewing his Kingsguard and getting to know them, and here's how that goes. There is only one question I would put to you. You served as loyally, it's true, but Varys tells me that your brother rode with Renly and then Stannis. 
whilst your lord father chose not to call his banners at all, and remained behind the walls of Stone Helm all through the fighting. My father is an old man, my lord, well past forty. His fighting days are done. And your brother? Donal was wounded in the battle, and yielded to Sir Elwood Hart. He was ransomed afterward and pledged his fealty to King Joffrey, as did many other captives. So he did, said Jamie. Even so, Renly, Stannis, Joffrey, Tommen. How did he come to omit Balon Greyjoy or Rob Stark? He might have been the first knight in the realm to swear fealty to all six kings. Sir Balon's unease was plain. Donnell erred, but he is Tommen's man now, you have my word. It's not Sir Donnell the Constant who concerns me, it's you. Jamie leaned forward. What will you do if brave Sir Donnell gives his sword to yet another usurper, and one day comes storming into the throne room, and there you stand all in white, between your king and your blood? What will you do? I, my lord, that will never happen. It happened to me, Jamie said. Swan wiped his brow with the sleeve of his white tunic. You have no answer? My lord, Sir Balon drew himself up. On my sword, on my honour, on my father's name, I swear I shall not do as you did. Not only is Jamie suggesting the idea of Balon Swan having to fight his brother, Donal the Constant, from our green zombie research, we know that Donal is a version of Donner, one of Santa's reindeer. And more importantly, Donner is the German word for thunder, which is why Beric the Lightning Lord is of House Dondarian. And of course, Dondar is the Dutch equivalent of Donner. Thus, like Baylor Hightower with a brother named Garth, Balon Swan has a brother who is implied as a horned lord. This time, the notion of the Bale figure fighting his Garth-like brother is directly suggested. And of course, this is just a reinforcing of the Swan's fighting sigil. The likeness to the Arthurian legend of Balin and Balan is unmistakable now, I would think. And once again, the hat tip goes to Crowfood's daughter for spotting this scene with Balin and Jamie. As you can tell, she's done quite a bit of research on Bale figures in A Song of Ice and Fire. And that's why I'm having her on the live stream. And because she's my friend. Bale-ish. This final section is brought to you by our final three new acolytes of Starry Wisdom. Rupi, the Funketeer, Archmaester of Synesthesia, Icarus Drowning, the Public Eye, and Edward Greenhand, the Transplanting Transplant, with a history of history. For our final Bale-ish character, it's, yeah, Peter Baelish. He's Bale-ish. Yeah, that's right. I didn't think of that one, and again, I don't know who was the first to notice it, but it's clever wordplay on Martin's behalf, that's for certain. I'm saving an in-depth look at Peter for the Sansa episode, when we'll discuss all things related to Lysa and Kat and Peter and Sansa and the Vale, but let me briefly summarize a couple of things which are relevant to our discussion today. Peter's initial setup is one of a dark solar king with two lady loves, Kat and Lysa. Kat is the one he wants, and Lysa the one he gets with Cat being a strong Firemoon figure, as we discussed in Venus of the Woods, and Lysa is, of course, a great Ice Queen, as we've discussed a couple of times in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. Peter goes on to live in the Icy Vale as Lord Protector, depicting the dragon-locked in ice pattern. 
Now, Peter may not be a dragon lord, but he does have a gift for rubbing two golden dragons together to breed a third, as Tyrion thinks to himself. And he's fond of giving moon maidens like Sansa the forbidden pomegranates of Hades, which is, of course, symbolic of Peter stealing Sansa away from King's Landing to the Eyrie. You may also recall his initial sigil, the one which belonged to Grandpa Baelish, the stone head of the Titan of Bravos, complete with fiery eyes. That certainly reminds us of Baelor, the giant with the burning eye, does it not? The Titan of Bravos holds a broken sword, which gives us the familiar symbol of the last hero, and inside Peter's little tower on the fingers, we find another broken sword hanging over the mantle of the fireplace. Even the boat that he sails on, the Merlin King, makes us think of the statue of the Merlin King at White Harbor, a.k.a. Old Fishfoot, who has a trident with a broken prong. I think George was using a stone head to reference Baylor of the Evil Eye with Balon Swan as well. House Swan comes from a castle called Stonehelm, which is very similar to the huge stone helm of the Titan of Bravos. Most importantly, Peter is the one who lures Sansa to the Vale. As I explained last time, the female version of the dragon locked in ice symbolism emphasizes the black fire moon meteor that lodges in the ice moon as the fire moon queen transforming and becoming Night's Queen. For example, Sansa does fire moon and Nissa Nissa things at King's Landing, then flees to the icy vale, calling herself Elaine Stone and darkening her hair and cloak. When she gets there, she supplants the old Ice Queen, Lysa, and proceeds to do Night's Queen things herself, as I'll show you when we go to the Vale for that episode. Like I said, we'll talk about all of that in detail in the future, but as you can see, Peter Bale-ish hits many of the marks. And some of the other Night's King hallmarks in that storyline are met by the bard who serves as an adjunct to Peter, Marillion. He was the singer who traveled to the Eyrie with Lady Cat and Tyrion and Bronn and the rest in A Game of Thrones, and the same singer who was later made the scapegoat for Lysa Tully's murder. This leads to Marillion's imprisonment in the Eyrie, giving us another depiction of a Night's King bard locked in ice. In parallel to Peter's abducting Sansa and coming on to her, we have slimy Marillion trying to rape Sansa on the night of Peter's wedding to Lysa Tully, who is of course another Ice Moon Queen. After Tyrion's trial and release, Marillion stays in the Vale and ingratiates himself to Lysa, He's called Lysa's Singer, and is lavished with gifts and even John Aaron's own falcon, and it's strongly suggested that Marillion coerced or forced himself on several serving girls. In other words, we can see he's not just stuck in the Ice Moon symbol of the Eyrie, he's actually trying to give his seed to Ice Moon Queens. Later, people say that Lysa was killed by her singer. That kind of gives you the idea. Finally, Marillion is imprisoned in the Sky Cells and referred to as a dead man, which fits the idea of Night's King giving his soul to Night's Queen and undergoing some sort of transformation or death transformation. To further the idea of Marillion's ghost lingering there even after his death, we read that Little Sweet Robin can still hear him singing on the wind and in his dreams every night. One other thing that works as Night's King's symbolism for Marillion is the fact that he wore the shadow skin cloak of a dead mountain clansman for a while, and the shadow cat, which gives us the shadow skin cloak, is just another way of saying Lion of Night. Cat of Shadow, Cat of Night, Lion of Night. So where did he get that shadow skin cloak? Why, from a mountain clansman of the Mountains of the Moon, of course. 
This is a depiction of the sun being cloaked in the darkness of the exploding moon's smoke, dust, and debris, and transforming into the dark solar king, who can in some instances become Night's King. The shadow skin cloak of Merillion is also just another version of the sable cloak, and once again, it's being taken from someone after they were killed. We'll go through all that in more detail when we do the Sansa at the Eerie episode, and I think that one's actually going to be not next, but probably after the next Blood of the Other episode, part two. But I had to mention Merillion and Peter Baelish here, as they have pretty strong echoes of the other bards and Bale figures. Now, although we're finally out of Bale characters, finally, we do have a couple of other bards that we need to mention. For example, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Blue Bard, that poor unfortunate soul. He's the singer whom Cersei and Kyburn tortured in the Black Cells in order to force a false confession that implicated Marjorie. He's a notable fellow because he seems to combine the symbolism of Rhaegar and Lyanna. He's a singer and a lutist, much like Rhaegar is a singer and a harpist, but he's cloaked in Lyanna's symbolism. Check out this passage. The singer's boots were supple blue calfskin, his breeches fine blue wool. The tunic he wore was pale blue silk, slashed with shiny blue satin. He had even gone so far as to dye his hair blue, in the Tyroshi fashion, long and curly. It fell to his shoulders and smelled as if it had been washed in rose water. From blue roses, no doubt. At least his teeth are white. The mention of blue roses sticks out like a sore thumb. It's obviously a clue for us to think about Lyanna, but it's hard to make sense of that unless you consider the mythical astronomy of what happens to our most unfortunate of unfortunates, the Blue Bard. Lord Kyburn ran a hand up the Blue Bard's chest. Does she take your nipples in her mouth during your love play? He took one between his thumb and forefinger and twisted. Some men enjoy that. Their nipples are as sensitive as a woman's. The razor flashed. The singer shrieked. On his chest, a wet red eye wept blood. Cersei felt ill. Part of her wanted to close her eyes, to turn away, to make it stop. But she was the queen, and this was treason. Lord Tywin would not have turned away. Oh my, it's a god's eye nipple. Disgusting, I know. I apologized to Martin Lewis for making him read it. But we do know what bloody eye symbolism means. And hey, if there are two moons, then they could be boobs of ice and fire, right? I wish I was joking, kind of, but I am not. It also happens in a storm of swords when that disgusting slaver Krasniz cuts off the nipple of an unsullied to demonstrate their immunity to pain to Danny. And the phrase is, a round red eye copiously weeping blood. Recall the line about Lord Tywin's ravaging of the Riverlands from Blackfish Tully. The Riverlands are awash in blood and flame all around the god's eye. It's not easy having a god's eye nipple. And getting back to the Blue Bard, the one-eye symbolism is repeated a couple of pages and many hours of torture later, so that we are sure to notice it. Without the Arbor and its fleet, the realm could never hope to rid itself of this Euron Crow's Eye and his accursed Iron Men. All you are doing is spitting up the names of men you saw about her chambers. We want the truth. The truth? Watt looked at her with the one blue eye that Kyburn had left him. Blood bubbled through the holes where his front teeth had been. I might have misremembered. So there you go. 
He's officially received the Odin makeover. And, oh yeah, of course, his eyes are blue. I forgot to mention that. He looks a lot like Waymar now, with one blind eye and one blue eye. Or like Euron, who has one blue smiling eye for the other moon, and his blood eye, which symbolizes the destruction of the fire moon. And as you can see, Euron Crow's eye is specifically mentioned here by Cersei, right before the line about the bard's one blue eye. It's an invitation to compare the one-eye symbolism of the blue bard to that of Euron, with the blue bard's bloody, weeping red-eye nipple matching Euron's blood eye very well. Essentially, blue bard's two nipples and two eyes function as parallel two-moon symbols. That's why Martin called the sliced nipple a weeping red eye. To follow that up, there are two possible others double entendres, both applied to the other people accused besides the bard the people that he will name as guilty. First, we have this, as Cersei directs his testimony away from certain people and towards others. I prefer this song to the other. Leave the great lords out of it. That was for the best. The others, though. Those others are again referred to as others a moment later. Sir Osney shall confess as well. The others must be made to understand that only through confession... Can they earn the king's forgiveness and the wall? In other words, Cersei doesn't want the blue bard to sing the other song, the song of the others, if you will, but rather a song which will implicate the others as guilty. The song the blue bard wants to sing is the song of the others, but Cersei is turning him against the others, just as in the literal plot, Cersei is turning him against his friends. And when the blue bard is taken prisoner... Orton Merriweather's face was damp with fear. This, oh, infamy, he dared seduce the queen? I fear it was the other way around, but he's a traitor all the same. Let him sing for Lord Kyburn. The blue bard went white. No! Blood dripped from his lip where the lute had torn it. I never! When Merriweather seized him by the arm, he screamed. Mother, have mercy! No! The other way round means Marjorie seduced the blue bard, just as Night's King was entranced by the beautiful ice queen with moon-pale skin, who took his seed and soul, a bit like a succubus. You may recall Renly showing Ned a picture of Marjorie and asking him if she looked like Lyanna, and then later admitting that he was scheming to make the girl Robert's queen. That's why he was hoping Marjorie had some sort of resemblance to Lyanna. He was hoping she would remind Robert of Lyanna. Anyway, I included the blue bard partly because it was amusing. Well, okay, I mean, it's pretty twisted, I suppose, and yeah, that was a nipple joke. But the main takeaway here is that Martin is simply using the blue bard to reinforce the idea of the others coming from the ice moon and ice moon figures, and that Lyanna is wrapped up in all of this. Appropriately, he's tied this gruesome yet symbolically rich eye and nipple gouging scene to Euron Crow's eye and all the other one-eyed symbolism that tells the story of the two moons. To finish up, the Blue Bard is imprisoned by the faith in the Sept of Baelor, which is, of course, an ice moon symbol and tied to Baelor figures, which makes the Blue Bard the dragon locked in ice, very like Merillion imprisoned at the Eyrie or even Mance locked in a cold cage at Winterfell. Oh, and what's this? I'm being handed something here. Let's see. Uh, ah, yes, there's also a Galeon of Kai who sings at Joffrey and Marjorie's grand wedding. Galeon... Bale. Balian. Well, it's kind of close. Galian. Balerion. I'll just have to quote this one. 
Galeon was a big, barrel-chested man with a black beard, a bald head, and a thunderous voice that filled every corner of the throne room. He brought no fewer than six musicians to play for him. Noble lords and ladies fair, I sing but one song for you this night, he announced. It is the song of the black water and how a realm was saved. The drummer began a slow, ominous beat. The Dark Lord brooded high in his tower, Galleon began, in a castle as black as the night. Black was his hair, and black was his soul. The musicians chanted in unison. A flute came in. He feasted on bloodlust and envy, and filled his cup full up with spite, sang Galeon. My brother once ruled seven kingdoms, he said to his harridan wife. I'll take what was his and make it all mine. Let his son feel the point of my knife. The Dark Lord in the Tower that Galeon is singing about is, of course, our good buddy Stannis the Menace Baratheon. His Night's King status is well known to us, but note that it's reinforced here by more than the Dark Lord stuff. The song makes Stannis out to be some kind of usurper of his brother. Of course, Stannis did kill Renly with the Shadow Baby assassin, and the pretend resurrected Renly in turn helped throw down Stannis at the Blackwater. So we can see that the themes of brothers fighting and usurpation run strongly in Stannis's plotline. But here's the thing. I can't help but notice that Mr. Galeon of Kai himself has black hair, very like the Dark Lord in his tower that he's singing about. House Kai is from the Reach and hails from a castle called Sun House and places six yellow sunflowers on blue for a sigil. So it's easy to associate Galeon with the sun. Plus the Leon, L-E-O-N, in his name sounds like lion. And no, I won't make a gay lion joke. But obviously, he's become a dark sun as he has that hair black as the night that compares to the dark lord in his song. Now, as far as symbolism goes, that's pretty weak tea. And you guys know... Martin always gives us a little more than that to go on. Accordingly, there is a far more important clue about Galeon being the Dark Lord sort of singer who brings on the long night, and it comes with the lines, Soon it was full night outside the tall windows, and still Galeon sang on. His song had 77 verses, though it seemed more like a thousand. So he's a bard with a thunderous voice who sings to bring on the night. That's very interesting. It's Galeon, the Black Dread. I kid, but it's a very important point, actually. One which connects Night's King to Azor High and the cause of the Long Night. The bard aspect of the Night's King character has to do with singing to bring on the Long Night. Alright, well, we've reached the point in the original script where I was forced to split it in half, and we've reached a kind of fork in the road. We have a lot more to say about the stolen Night's King baby and the origins of House Stark and the question of who built the wall, but now we've opened up the topic of bards, singing, and music as it relates to Night's King and the Long Night. This situation was inevitable, 
because we had to dig into the connections between Rhaegar, Baal, Mance, and Night's King, and their stolen children, of course, in order to discover this stolen Night's Queen baby archetype. But that also raised the big question of, why does Night's King seem to be a bard figure? It's wrought absolute hell on my attempts to write cohesive essays that follow one topic at a time. Do I continue to follow the trail of the Night's Queen baby, or address the issue of Night's King being a bard figure? Basically, these are two different paths to follow, and they'll each require their own podcast. The stolen child of Night's King and Queen, whom I believe to be the ancestor of all Winterfell Starks who came after, is more central to the title of the series, Blood of the Other. So part two, titled Eldric Shadow Chaser, will focus squarely on that archetype. We've already identified John, Baby Monster, Bale the Bard's son, and Theon as stolen Night's King and Queen babies. And in the next episode, we'll identify a fresh crop of new ones, ones who aren't tied to bards or people named Bale. As you might guess from the title, we may or may not be talking about people like Edric Dane or Edric Storm. There's definitely a remote chance of discussing such distinguished figures as the venerable King Edric Snowbeard Stark, or maybe even the legendary Ulrich Dane, who was the Sword of the Morning in his day. Somehow, that's all going to tie into the legend of Eldric Shadow Chaser and our rescued other baby. Take my word for it. Then, in a different episode, we'll come back to the question of how and in what sense is the Night's King a bard or singer or musician? as well as the related question of what part sound, music, and singing might play in the events of the Long Night. That might sound a bit vague and open-ended, so let me just narrow it down for you. That's going to be the episode all about the magic horns. The Horn of Winter, sometimes called the Horn of Jorman, Euron's Dragonbinder Horn, the broken and chipped old horn that John and Ghost find on the Fist of the First Men, and even Mance's fake horn of Jorman that Melisandre burns at the Wall. I think I'm going to call that one Part 3 of Blood of the Other, although I'm not totally sure of that. What I do know is that I'll have a pretty wild new theory about all these horns for you, and that the title will assuredly be based on some sort of clever, horn-blowing wordplay. The other episode that's on deck for the near future is the Sansa at the Eerie Moons of Ice and Fire episode, which will be jam-packed with next-level ice moon symbolism. After that, I believe it might be time, well past time actually, that we go under the sea with Ravenous Reader, poetess of the Nenimones, which is something I've been working towards for a while now. Most importantly, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you at our next live stream Q&A, which will be one week from today, on Saturday, March 3rd, at 3.30 Eastern. Crowfood's daughter will be my special guest, so tune in to the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel and come hang with us. You can submit questions or comments for the live stream on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, WordPress, or Patreon. Thanks, everyone, and I'll see you then.